right, good morning. It's good to see everybody. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. As you can see, we have a new series that is going to start next Sunday. Uh, That's December the 4th, and we're going to be in a series called Bloodlines. And uh, what this is really going to be about is we're going to open up the uh, first chapter of the book of Matthew, and we're just going to unpack part of the genealogy of Jesus. And we're going to look down and see some uh, families and some people in his life that uh, maybe you'd be a little shocked to see in the genealogy of the Savior, Jesus, coming. And so uh, we're, we're going to break that down. So if you want to get a head start on some of that, go read Matthew chapter 1 this week. We'll start that next Sunday. That will take us all the way up to Christmas, and uh, we'll finish out our Christmas series in Bloodlines. All right? If you have your Bible with you, I ask you to go ahead and take that out and open it to Acts chapter 7. If you have a device uh, with a Bible on it, you can go ahead and take that out as well. It's crazy to think that today is going to be the last Sunday in our Acts series. Today is the, the last one. Now, uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, you, you know that, that Acts chapter 7 is not the end of the book of Acts. There's still a lot more uh, chapters that, that we're not going to be able to go through. And so here's what I want to throw out to you, man. I, want, I would love to see our church continue just reading through the book of Acts. Don't stop at chapter 7. Keep moving through it. Finish out the book because uh, we, we've really only scratched the surface of this uh, just incredible stories and, and all of this incredible working that God had done through uh, the church in this time. And so keep reading through that. Keep plugging away because it'll be well, well worth your time. Today we are going to finish uh, kind of a part two of, of last week. And last week in chapter six of the book of Acts, James kind of opened up for us the, the beginnings of a man named Stephen. The life of a man named Stephen that, that started in chapter 6. Now, Stephen was an incredible man in the scriptures. That uh, His story is inspiring to me. It's challenging to me. It's, it's really just an incredible story of faith. But, but the Bible, even as awesome as Stephen is, really gives him two chapters. And his life is, uh, from, from what we can see of it, it's, it's short. But he made an incredible, incredible impact on the church. And, and I think you're going to see why today. I'll recap last week in case you weren't here real quickly. Uh, last week we get to Acts chapter 6 and, and Stephen, this Christian man, is, is preaching about Jesus and he's taking Jesus out to, to people and, and he's telling them about Christ and everything he had done for them. And, and as he's doing that, the, the Jewish religious leaders of the day were beginning to get really upset with him that he was preaching about Jesus. They hated the message that he was preaching, and, and ultimately what they decided to do was conspire against him, and they, they, they got people to lie about him and, and stirred up this whole controversy and had him arrested and taken in. And so the, the, really the big point that we looked at last Sunday was this, is that uh, sometimes people don't care the type of person you are. They're going to hate you because of what you say. And so Stephen was this way from everything we know. Stephen was a good man that uh, did many good things, and, and he didn't seem like he was a nuisance on the society. He seemed like he contributed in a lot of ways, and the Bible speaks of him as a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, but also full of grace. So Stephen seems like a decent guy to us, and, and still simply because he was preaching about Jesus, the people hated him. And so they conspired against him. The, Jewish, the, the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders couldn't stand him for the gospel that he was preaching. And so they decide they're going to come against him and arrest him. And so they did. And that led us to think that sometimes who you are, it always matters. But sometimes what you say matters most. Sometimes you could be a decent person. You and I as Christians, we could be good people in the society, contribute, be, be a nice person, a decent person. But sometimes people may hate you simply because of the Jesus that you follow. 
And so it led us to ask, man, how, how do we respond in these moments? And we should look at Stephen's story. We're going to do that today. Look at how Stephen responded in the face of a moment like this. How, how do you and I respond as Christians whenever we're, we're telling people about Jesus and they hate us simply because we're telling them? And, and I feel as if at times I'm the doom and gloom guy in this series, right? Every time I feel like I've preached, somebody's getting arrested or killed. And every single time I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to be the doom and gloom. But all throughout Acts so far, man, that's been the case over and over and over again. There has been a pattern of people, followers of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel and the world not necessarily loving them for it. So how they respond, we should give our ears to that. See how, how they did because there is a day that could be coming and it's, it's maybe upon us now and it gets closer and closer that Christianity is not the American norm anymore. That it's not just assumed that if you're an American, you're a Christian. And, 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 and in fact, a lot of ways, the culture is going against uh, Christian values and, and morality. And, and I think that's a good thing. But the thing that is happening with that is that people are not wanting to hear about Jesus. And what do we do as a church if people begin to hate us simply for the gospel we preach? How do you respond to them? And hear me, I'm not talking about we go stand on the side of the road with a bullhorn and we yell for six hours and tell people they're going to hell. I can understand why people get frustrated with that. I can understand why people maybe don't have a good view of Christians because we slap the most hateful bumper stickers we can find about sin and hell. We throw it on the back and, of our cars and people ride by and they give us dirty looks. I can understand that. I can understand people may not like us because at times it, we, we're tempted to uh, kind of put Jesus into our political party and we, we associate Jesus with our politics and we get, uh, we get offended when people are upset that, that they don't agree with us. I can understand why people get mad about that, but what do we do when someone hates us for preaching a pure gospel? What do we do when someone hates you for saying, me, you, all of us, we were born into this world, we were born in sin? That you have been sinful from your birth and, and there is absolutely no way that you can work your way out of it. There is no way that you can earn God's favor. You can't uh, do enough, try hard enough, be a good enough person. There's nothing you can do to, to crawl your way out of that hole. But there is this man named Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth. He, he left his throne in heaven. He came to this earth and he wrapped himself in flesh. And he, he lived the perfect, obedient life to everything God had called him to. And at the end of his life, he gets put on a cross and he bears the wrath of God for every single person who would believe in Jesus as their Savior. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave and he now sits enthroned above heaven and he is our high priest forever. What do you do if someone hates you because you tell them about that? Because that's what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And for you and I, if that day comes, I feel like we need to be prepared. And I don't mean this is it's not some like apocalyptic type warning, but what we have experienced in our country for a long time is not normal for most of the world. And if it begins to change, my fear is that if we are not ready, we will respond wrongly. We either run in fear or retaliate in a, in a negative way. And so there are stories like Stephen's that we can look to for help. And so we're going to look at chapter 7 together. Now, I, I got the tall order of preaching all of chapter 7, so we're not going to be able to read every single verse. We just won't have time for it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize the first 53 verses. So 1 to 53, I'll throw a summary. I'll have a little little word up here for you, and you can follow along with me. But I'll explain this, but I want to challenge you. Go and read all of these verses on your own today because it's incredibly impactful and it's worth your read. 
So quickly, Stephen, uh, chapter 6 ends, and the religious leaders have uh, arrested him, and, and they charge him with these things, and they come to the end, and they say, hey, are what we said about you, is this true? Speak for yourself, is this true or not? And Stephen, in 53 verses, eloquently and, and very strongly, shares and responds back to them what he's thinking. And what Stephen does is he goes and he attacks three major things that the Jewish community was holding to so dearly. They had really become these type of religious idols that they had exalted to a place above God. And Stephen wants to help show them that, hey, while you guys worship these things, you miss Jesus. Jesus came to give you life. He came to, to pay for your sin. He came to offer you abundant life. And instead of believing him, trusting him, following him, you guys have killed him. And so for 53 verses, he unpacks it, and he does it into three categories. And I'll put it up here for you on the screen. Uh, Stephen responds to three things. The first thing is the land. The land, and, and what I'm talking about in verses 2 to 36 is the physical land of Israel. He shows them how they have idolized this physical land. The second part that he points them to is the law and Moses. How they have idolized and put the law and Moses above God himself. And then the last thing is the temple. And he shows them how they have done that. And I'll just walk through these quickly. The first thing he shows them is about the land. In this time and in this day, the Jewish community really thought that if you lived in the physical land of Palestine, that you had special rights, privileges, and affections from God himself. And so they thought because you were in this physical place that you were going to have the really blessing of God, approval of God, affection of God because of your geographical location. And Stephen begins to show them that, hey, just because you live in a land does not make you a follower of God. You, you can live in a place and be far from God, even though you're filled and around religious things all day long. And he's showing them that your, your, your religion has become dry, uh, dead, and cold. And you think that because you live on a physical piece of property that you're God's people. And so he begins to show them a little history lesson through the Old Testament, and he takes them back to Abraham, and he says, do you not see that Abraham, he was blessed by God before he knew where the promised land was? And the people of Israel, they were blessed by God. God was with them while they were in the exile in Egypt. God blessed them, he was with them, he was for them, and in fact, some of the greatest miracles happened to the Jewish people, the Israelite community, while they were in Egypt and on the way to the promised land, not when they got there. God worked extraordinarily in their lives before they ever got to the promised land. So he's showing them that God's affection is not contingent on a physical place that you live in. And I think for us as American Christians, this is important to remember. Because too often times we will associate the fact that we live in a country and we'll claim it to be a Christian country and, and, and we'll claim our identity as Christians simply because we're Americans. Being an American does not make us Christian. You can be a Christian living in America, but if you live in America, that does not uh, constitute you as a Christian. So we have to be careful with how we think about this because we have to remember that oftentimes the, the place you live can be a blessing from God, but we cannot exalt it to the place of God himself. And so Stephen so eloquently reminds the people of this. The next thing that he reminds them of is the law and Moses. What was happening in this time was the community thought if they could just obey the law well enough, if they could be good enough, try hard enough, uh, obey enough perfectly, then surely God would love them and they would be welcomed into his kingdom because they were good people. They followed the law as he had laid it out. 
And so they took the law and they took Moses and they exalted them to this place where they were uh, kind of engaging in this legalistic, white-knuckling, dead religion where uh, they just tried to be decent people. And it had nothing to do about their relationship with God, but it had everything to do with them. And so, so it was about self and it wasn't about God. They were earning, trying to earn their own salvation instead of trusting in God for it. And so Stephen reminds them that hey, there is absolutely nothing you can do to work your way out of this hole that you find yourself in. You can't obey the law well enough to earn God's favor. And he reminds them that, that you guys are missing the entire point of Jesus, that Jesus came to earth to fulfill the law perfectly. And so as Jesus was on this earth, he lived every command of God perfectly in a sinless life. And the beautiful part about the cross is not just that our sins are forgiven, but at the cross there's exchange, this exchange that takes place where Jesus pays for our sin, and in exchange for our sin, we get his righteousness. So as God sees us, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. And all of that was a free gift of grace. There is nothing that, that you and I did to accomplish that. He gives us that as an act of his grace and mercy. And he's reminding the Jewish leaders that the law and Moses, these things were all testifying to Jesus that was to come. All of these things pointed the way. The law should have shown you your inability. Moses is the one who spoke about this great prophet that was going to come out from among the people and he was going to save Israel. All all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is seen all over the place and you guys missed him and you just killed him. And for us, when we read the Old Testament, we ought to remember that it's not there. It's just these old stories that are disconnected from us as New Testament Christians. But when we read these things, we're getting these foreshadowings of Jesus to come. And so instead of us becoming people, if we're not careful, who will try to white-knuckle our, ourselves into the kingdom, we'll say, man, if I can just obey enough, be good enough, if I come to church enough, be a good enough person, do decent enough acts, surely God will accept me. And we have to understand that God accepts us not because of anything that we bring to the table, but everything that Christ brought to the table. And that's why we're welcomed into the kingdom. And the last thing that Stephen goes after here is the temple. The temple. Now, in this day, the religious leaders in the community would have thought that uh, the, the, that God Himself was almost His person was kind of housed in the temple. They knew He was in heaven, but they thought they had to come to this temple to meet with Him, and and you couldn't meet with Him anywhere else after uh, Jesus had come. So you had to come to the temple and and meet with God. You had to have a priest that was going to mediate for you. And they basically boiled God down to the point where they tried to put Him in a box. They thought, well, if I come to the temple and I do these rituals and I do these religious things, then I'm okay, I'm meeting with God, and he's going to be appeased with me. And so they, ha- they, they put him in a, in a box called the temple. And Stephen's there to remind them from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, where God declares that heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. There is nothing that we should build for God as if he is lacking anything, but instead God gives to us all all life and breath and everything that we have. And so the reminder for the leaders was, you are not building a house for God. He doesn't need you to build him a house or come visit him in his home. He gives us everything. He's above all of it. And so they miss that Jesus had given them full access. And I think it's wise for us to remember that when you come here on a Sunday, you are not coming to God's house. This is not God's house. As if the bar sign outside, the old bar sign, wasn't enough to tell you. This is not God's house, all right? 
While this place may be important to us, this is where we gather together as a family of believers and, and we worship God and we come and, and we just want to sing his praise, we want to gather together, sit under the preaching of the word, we want to be together as one. This is not God's house. James, myself, anyone up here, we are not your mediators. Jesus is your mediator. You do not need me to go before heaven for you. I, I have no special rights that you can't have. God has made the way for you to have access to the Father through Jesus. He is your mediator. And so for us, that's a reminder. We're not coming on Sundays to God's house. He sits enthroned above all things. Stephen reminds the people of this. And, and as he finishes this, these 53 verses that are there, what begins to happen is it becomes to be a really big deal to these people. If you know anything about what this would have done, it absolutely infuriated the religious leaders that were listening and the people that were standing around to hear his response. And it was no small thing that he just called out. And so with that said, let's pick up in verse 54 and we're going to read together. Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 56. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I have made my fair share of people angry before, quite a lot of them, actually. But I don't know if I've ever made someone so mad to the point where they begin to grind their teeth at me. Almost like a, a rabid animal or a kid that becomes enraged and they, they have no other response other than to just kind of grit their teeth and just, just be in absolute anger and misery. And that, that's what's just happened as Stephen has responded back. The people get so angry, the, the only logical response that they think they have is just to grind their teeth because they're so filled with anger and hatred towards him. And Stephen has just stirred up a problem and he's made his situation a heck of a lot worse. It's Stephen in this moment, they've accused him, they've arrested him, they've got him. And I want you to put yourself in this moment. Stephen could have, when they questioned him, stood down. He could have said, okay, I won't talk about Jesus anymore. If you guys will let me go, I'll shut up, I won't talk about him. You can just let me go off and I'll be fine. He could have stood down, he could have cowered back, he could have compromised but instead of doing that, what does he do? He stands there for 53 verses and he unpacks to them how they have missed Jesus. He stands firm for the gospel and now you have a mob of people who are angry and furious. And as he's facing this mob of people who are angry with him, what does he do? He says that he looked up and he saw, full of the Holy Spirit, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'm gonna show you this, that Stephen facing danger his eyes are fixed on heaven. In the face of absolute danger of this mob, Stephen's eyes are fixed directly on Jesus. Stephen is standing there, mob staring him in the face, angry, grinding their teeth. And he says he looks up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, why is that significant? Don't miss this. Most of the New Testament, from the book of Acts forward, just about any time you see Jesus depicted in the New Testament, after he's ascended back into heaven, he's shown as seated at the right hand of God. 
So every time you go to see it, he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and, and that's significant because what that means is uh, when Jesus, when he came to this earth, he, he lived, he died, and he resurrected. He, he, he goes back to heaven in his sins, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And that is significant because it's showing that, that the work needed for salvation is full and complete. Everything needed for you and I to have a restored relationship back to God, to have our sin atoned for, to have our lives transformed, everything needed was done. And Jesus sat down to show that, hey, it is finished. There is no work of atonement you have to do. You don't have to make yourself better. You don't have to try harder or do more. I have accomplished everything for you. And he sits down to show that it is totally finished. But in this moment, Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And why is that? Jesus is standing there, kind of peering over the gates of heaven, if you will, seeing what his faithful servant Stephen is walking through, and he's about to welcome home the first Christian to lay his life down for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is there to welcome him and receive his faithful follower into his kingdom. He's receiving him back in and And Jesus is there with him watching him. And Stephen has his eyes directly fixed on to Christ. And let's keep reading together. Let's look at verse 57 through 60. As Stephen is staring into the heavens, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. To put you into this picture, Stephen is there and you have a, a crowd that's just become more angry because of his response And Stephen's staring and he's seeing Jesus in heaven and and I can only imagine what's happening to Stephen that he's having this supernatural peace that is passing over his life. And he knows he's facing danger and he knows he could compromise and he knows he could back down but instead of doing that, he he stays fixed on Jesus and and peace comes over him. And, And the people are thinking, well maybe if we're enraged enough, maybe he'll back down then and Stephen doesn't. Instead he's filled with peace and, and he's staring at God and so what they do is they become even more angry. And it says they stop their ears and they begin to yell so they didn't have to hear what was happening and they rush at him. Like a child who has no other response and they rush and they hold their ears and yell loudly because they're so angry. This mob is acting like that directly at Stephen. And they go and they take him and it says they take him out of the city and they begin to stone him. If you're not familiar with a death by stoning, this was an absolutely brutal way for someone to go down. What would happen is this crowd of people would go out and they would get large stones and and rocks and they would pick them up and they would just throw them and hit someone repeatedly over and over and over again. And and as you're experiencing a stoning, it would be bone by bone, crushing blood, gushing out from you and just immense pain and torture happening to someone. And they would throw stones until eventually he would fall to the ground dead. And so they take Stephen out and, and, and they're going to stone him. And they're going to put him through this type of death. And, and it says they took their outer garments off. And I don't know about you, I, I took my fair share of spankings as a child. My mom used to get the belt out on me all the time. And here's how I knew how much trouble I was in. If mom had to take her jacket off to get a better shot with the belt, 
I knew it was going down. I knew I had really done something bad. And so if the jacket came off, leverage was happening. And, and that's what's happening here. These people come and they're taking Stephen out of the city. They're going to stone him. They take their outer garments off so that they can have a better shot at him and nothing will impede their throw. And they take him out ready to kill him. And it says that when they got there, they laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. Don't miss this. Saul that you're reading about here, who is standing there holding the jackets of everyone who is going to kill Stephen, that Saul is the very same person that you will know later known as the Apostle Paul. The same Paul that wrote most of our New Testament books that we have. The same Saul that God would change his life in just a short chapter and he would transform him forever and he would now be known as Paul from that day forward. And he would become one of the greatest church leaders that the church has ever known. But at this point in time, he was Saul. And he's standing there holding the garments of the people, willingly approving of everything they're doing to Stephen. He's approving of, of his death and putting him to death. Saul was a religious zealot in the state, a Jewish religious zealot who, who wanted to kill and persecute Christians. And we see him show up in the story of Stephen. And so they begin to stone him as Saul stands by and watches what happens. And, and Stephen begins to become closer and closer to his death as stones are being thrown and they're hitting him and, and bones breaking and blood is flowing and he's getting ready to go down. And he says two important things that I want you to see. The first one is this. He cries out and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Standing there in agony. God, I'm, I'm about to come to you. Jesus, I'm coming home. Receive my spirit and and as the mob continues to throw, and as he's experiencing pain and he knows the end is coming near, he comes to a point where he comes to his last words and, and he says this. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, who is experiencing immense pain, immense punishment for following Jesus, instead of becoming angry, Instead of becoming defensive, instead of running, instead of recanting, instead of stopping and saying, no, no, I'll stop. Because he could have been like Peter who, who left Jesus at the cross and ran away. He could have done that, but instead he stays and he doesn't back down. And, and so he knows he's getting close. And the last thing that he says to the people who hate him, who despise him, and who are killing him is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What type of grace is that? that you could literally stand and stare your accuser and your killer in the face. Say, Lord, don't hold it against them. And what was happening here is this, I want you to see it, is that down to the end, Stephen's life re reflected his master. Down to the very end, Stephen's life reflected his master. Those two statements, Lord, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them, they sound an awful lot like Jesus when he went to his cross. These words were echoed very similarly by Jesus as, as Jesus goes to the cross and is going to die as an innocent man. He's going to pay for the sins of his people. And as Jesus is on the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive these men because they, they don't understand what they're doing. 
And Stephen now in his death is apparently walking so closely with Jesus, his life reflecting his master so much that he even sounds like Jesus down to the very end. That as he is dying, he has the ability to say, don't hold it against them. As he could have ran, he could have hated him. And I think for us, man, we think that, man, there's no way this response could be happening to us. Man, if I was going to be killed with, with stones, if somebody was going to take me out and kill me for my faith, man, surely I couldn't stand there and forgive them. But that is exactly the type of grace that the cross of Jesus Christ offered to you. And that is what that can produce within us, that we can become people whose lives reflect their master down to the very end. Everything about us, our thoughts, our words, our life, our actions, our love, our grace, our forgiveness, all of it, we should ask ourselves, do these things, do they reflect the Jesus that I follow? Does my entire life reflect Christ and everything that he's done for me? And I'm not talking about some legalistic type of uh, duty-filled following. I'm talking about a man like Stephen who has had his life so radically changed by the message of Jesus that he can't help but sound like him down to his death. And so they kill Stephen. The Bible says he fell asleep, and it's another word for that he, he, he went to his death. And in this moment, something significant is happening. Something bigger than what the crowd realized was going on because Saul was standing there holding these coats willingly, standing by and approving of everything that has taken place. And what they didn't realize was that the suffering that Stephen endured was going to cause a great kind of spark to happen for the church. Because God has consistently used the suffering of his people for the advancing of his church. That's why I don't want to be the doom and gloom guy all the time, but, but we have to understand that there will come a time where people may not like you. Jesus said, if, if they hated me, how much more are they going to hate you? And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. And so the church here is experiencing it. Stephen going to his death, but later we know that Saul becomes Paul. That he experiences God's grace very real and tangibly. And that Paul becomes a church leader very influentially. And I want you to listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. This is the same Paul that was holding these coats. He says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So not only has God granted us belief in his son Jesus, not only has he given us grace, everything we need to be restored back to a relationship with God, Jesus has also gift-wrapped suffering for his people. It's been granted to us that we would be able to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And Paul is one who got this because I have to believe that, that as Saul is standing there and he becomes known as Paul a couple of chapters later, I have to believe that as he's watching what's happening to Stephen and he's watching this boldness and this, uh, this, this courageousness that Stephen is carrying himself with and this, this faith and this trust in Jesus that he has, I have to believe that something about that moment did something in Saul's life. I have to believe that, that what he saw happen to Stephen maybe was a spark and a turning point in Saul's life. So we never know when we experience and walk through suffering what that may do for other people. You never know if what you experience may be the cause of someone coming to faith in Jesus as their Lord simply because they watched you suffer well.
We're going to end in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. I know we said we would stop in 7, but I lied. So we're going to read chapter 8, verse 1 together. And I want you to see what happens next in this text. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered together throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. At the death of Stephen, a spark lit and it ignited a fire that would spread the gospel throughout the world. At that moment of the man dying innocently for the sake of the gospel, something happened and the church begins to experience this great persecution. And I want you to see this is the truth that under pressure, the church flourishes. Under pressure, the church flourishes. Every time the heat gets turned up on the church, it begins to grow more. And this is what we see happening here in 8 verse 1, that this, this persecution now arises after the stoning of Stephen against the church, and, and they begin to scatter out to Judea and Samaria. Now that's significant because if you remember back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus commissioned the church and he said that you were going to be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And up until this point, the church was only in Jerusalem. And at Stephen's death... A persecution arises that forces the church out. And where do they go? Judea and Samaria. The commission of God to his people begins to be accomplished because Stephen was killed. And this persecution arose. And the church begins to be the church and live out the mission that God had called it to and and taking the gospel to new places. And I I love the last three words of Acts chapter 8 verse 1 because it says this persecution arises. They go to Judea and Samaria and they're scattered, everyone except for the apostles. Why is that significant? Because in this moment you have the church, everyday people, not trained professionals, Not these special pastors or ministers, but you have everyday people in the church filled with the spirit of God, God, armed with the gospel of God, taking the gospel to new places and new people. And the church is continuing to grow. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the church is flourishing without them being there. I think at times we think, man, if our, our, our American culture has built church up to be, I put a few dollars in the plate so that the professionals can minister. And, and if I want someone to know Jesus, I'll bring them to the church. They can just come here and hear pastor tell them about Jesus because he's really good at it. And, and so we'll do that. But every time you see the gospel exploding in the book of Acts, most of the time it is because everyday people have taken it there. I love it later on as the apostles go and and Paul, as he travels around to preach the gospel and plant churches, he shows up to new cities and guess who's there to greet him? The believers. The gospel had already made it to where he wanted to go. Because the church, everyday people, us, not trained people, not special ministers, but everyday people filled with the spirit of God, taking the gospel to the nations, and the church is exploding. And it all started with one man laying down his life, being stoned as he was innocent. And the gospel takes root into brand new places. And so as we close, I want to ask you to think again as as you may experience a moment like this. 
and look, hear me again. I know we're not there yet. I'm not worried about going and getting stoned out back for, for telling people about Jesus today. But when someone comes against you for simply following him, what is your response going to be? Do you feel the need to have to run, hide, compromise, defend yourself, or can you stand firm on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ and stand no matter what it costs? Because that day will come for all of us. In some way, shape, or form, it will happen. Are we prepared? Are we like Stephen who lived and followed Jesus so closely that down to the very last breath, we sound like him? How are you going to respond in those moments? And so as we close, the band's going to come and play another song. And and I just want to ask you to consider that in your own life. Man, where are you with this? Do you feel like you need grace from the Lord? And just ask him for it. Do you believe that God wants to make you bold with his spirit, give you everything you need to be faithful to the gospel in the world that we live in? Because he does. And we have not at times because we don't ask. So we need to ask him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for stories like Stephen who inspire us, show us your truth. And God, I want to ask for us as a church that that as we walk through life, that you would continue to give us everything we need to be faithful to your word, to be faithful to the gospel in the places we live, work, and play. God, help us to be faithful stewards of what you have given us, no matter what it costs us. God, you know what every single person in this room needs. You know, the, you know if we need boldness, if we need courage, if we need compassion, if we need grace, God, you know what we need, and I ask that you would give that to us so that we could continue to see Jesus known in our world today. We love you and we thank you in his name. Amen.